0: I invite you to open this morning in God's Word to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis t- chapter 39, and we're going to study that whole chapter together. Picking up again in Joseph's uh, narrative, we took a little bit of a break last week in Genesis 38. It's, and I'll explain why Genesis 38 is where it is in Scripture. So uh, it seems a little bit out of place. I went back and... and Uh, critiqued the message last week and I realized I didn't really explain well why Genesis 38 is where it is And so I want to make sure you get that today because it does seem a little bit peculiar Uh, We we read about Joseph in Genesis 37 And then suddenly he's not really mentioned in 38 and then chapter 39. We pick back up like we never left him and so uh, We're gonna explain why that is in a moment You know, there was a a 5th century Greek philosopher that made this very profound statement I think all of us would agree with, and I had heard it said before, didn't know who said it, so I googled that, and I guess it was reliable. Uh, This gentleman said, the only constant in life is change. You've heard that before, right? The only constant in life is change. The narrative of Joseph's life, as much as any other Old Testament character, illustrates that truth. You know, when we left Joseph, he had descended from the heights of his father's favoritism into the depths of this waterless, almost waterless grave in a well, it would seem. He was stripped of his royal cloak, he was beaten mercilessly, and he heard his brothers at the mouth of that well bargaining with the slave traders about what to do with him. You know, What a change already in his life. And then in chapter 38, we're left holding in suspense of what what happens in what would be 20 years from the time he's traded into slavery to the point we're at in Genesis 39. You see, what the brothers did not know and what no one else, even Joseph, did not know, uh, we get to know because we read the whole story. And here's what we hold on to. Joseph, the entire time, was right where God wanted him to be. God had not lost control of Joseph's life. Through all the circumstances, uh, there was this invisible, unseen presence of God guiding Joseph's steps, and even the actions of those around Joseph. But the changes would still roll on in the chapter before us, and in all of the ups and downs of Joseph's experience, Here's the simple truth that I want you to hold on to this morning. God is with us in all circumstances. And you say, Jared, I've heard you say this so many times. And it, the reason why we say this so many times is because it is a clear truth in Scripture, and I believe it's something God wants us to come back to again and again. How many lessons in your life did your mom and dad have to teach you again and again and Again? Like a broken record. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I was told many times to brush my teeth growing up. Now I understand it. I, no one has to tell me to do that anymore, but growing up, that was something I had to be told over and over again. Well, I believe we need to be told again and again and again that God is with us in all circumstances. Now, you and I may not experience the horrific path that Joseph walked. Uh, hopefully, we're not traded into slavery by our brothers but but we do experience some ups and downs we experience job loss right some of us have experienced that before the uncertainty of a job situation maybe the company you work for is struggling you know it and you wonder what's going to happen next or the uncertain world we live in I was in a meeting this past week over at the Baptist Center and we were planning the budget for uh, the associations next year and we read this and uh, uh, Dr. Smith presented it to us there he said you know they project inflation this next year is going to be 3 to 4% from where it is right now, not to mention what we've experienced already. I mean, that's incredible. So we live in an uncertain world, and or maybe uh, you experience some unexpected prosperity. Now, I don't think anybody in our church has won the lottery. Uh, if you did, let me know. Uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, some of you experience unexpected prosperity. Maybe you're victimized by the wrongdoing of others. Uncertain medical conditions or the loss of a loved one. Listen, through all of these things, hold on to this. God is with us. He's with us every step of the way. He is with us in each and every circumstance. Let's begin reading in Genesis 39, verses 1 through 6. If you will stand and honor the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord says this. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is clear. Thank you for this encouraging truth that we see again and again in Scripture. God, what a reminder we need even today that you're with us. And God, I pray that you will speak a better word than I ever could to us today. And God, that you will, by the power of your Spirit, God, you will make the word clear. That you'll make this word clear truly life-changing before us, that we will be challenged and encouraged, and that we will be sent for your glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Three scenes play out in this chapter, and we just looked at the first one, but we're going to navigate through all three of these scenes, and, and each one illustrates God's abiding presence with Joseph. But the bookends of this chapter really illustrate this truth most clearly. I emphasize these as I read, but maybe you underline them in Scripture and understand how it kind of situates everything that happens in this chapter between these truths. Notice in verse 2, it says the Lord was with Joseph. And then in the very next verse, verse 3, the Lord was with him. And then in verse 21, at the very end of this chapter, look there with me, the truth is repeated. The Lord was with Joseph. The same exact wording again, that is no accident. And then in verse 23, what does it say? The Lord was with him. And again, it seems that uh, as uh, the writer of this story, as the, as the one who's retelling this true account, as he's writing this, he wants to make sure that in all of this is taking place, this is the truth you hold on to. That this kind of encapsulates all of Joseph's experience. And so as we walk through these scenes and as we see them play out, that's what we're going to hold on to. Three different seasons of life that Joseph walks through. First, consider this in verses 1 through 6. In prosperity, God's presence is our treasure. You could say it this way. In prosperity, I would say God's presence must be our treasure. It must be what we cling to. Now, I don't want to spend too much time in these first six verses because really the action starts to heat up in the next ones. But know this, blessing presents a great danger for all of us. You know, for it's in blessing or prosperity that our eyes maybe begin to focus on the blessings instead of the one who has blessed us. But see, Scripture calls our attention back to God's presence, As Joseph experiences prosperity and the word blessing occurs again and again in those first six verses, it seems that our attention should not be on the blessing, but the blesser. Notice a couple of ways that this passage calls our attention to this. First, God's promises come into focus when we treasure his presence. This would kind of be the the litmus test, if you will. This would be the proof that if... His presence really is your treasure. You're holding on to His promises. You're holding on to who He said He would always be. It's interesting that the Lord, by name, His proper name, is mentioned eight times in this chapter. Eight times. I'm going to show you these really quickly. In verse 2, there's His proper name, the Lord. Verse 3, it's mentioned twice. In verse 5, two more times, and then go to the end of the chapter, again, those book-ending verses there, verse 21, and then verse 23, again, two times. You say, why is that significant? Well, here's a Bible study tip for you. When you're reading your Bible and you run across anywhere where it says in the Old Testament, the Lord... And it says that anytime those four letters, L-O-R-D, are in all capital letters, what the translator of Scripture is trying to draw our attention to here is this is the proper name of God. This is personal God. This is the covenant God. This is the one that Israel knew to be their personal Lord and Savior. This is the one that Jesus would come to be in the flesh, right? So all of these personal names communicate that he is near. Now, why is this important in Joseph's story? You see, in the entire rest of this story, the name, the proper name of the Lord is only used one more time in chapter 49 in verse 18. And so it seems that at the beginning of his life, at the beginning of everything that's about to transpire in his life, uh, the writer of this story wants to communicate clearly, the Lord was with him. Personal God was with him. Our covenant God is with him. Another reason this is significant is Israel would read this story later on. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Remember, we're not the first ones to read this story. Israel read this story first. Maybe you think about when they were in Egypt and they were enslaved. You think about they're wandering through the wilderness and they're hearing this story from Genesis again and again. They were the first ones to read this, in fact. Remember in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 8, what the Lord says to Moses. Pay attention. The Lord speaks to Moses and he says, I will bring you to the land that I swore to give or I promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. And there it is. I am the Lord. Friends, this is the God who's with Joseph. For Israel, the Lord was a promise-keeping God, and for us, this is true as well. His presence is the fulfillment of all of his promises. This is why David would say it this way in Psalm 27 and verse 4. He said, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is that what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The Lord in his presence, our promise-keeping God, he is our treasure. But notice this also. It's not just his promises that come into focus when he's our treasure. God's mission comes into focus when we treasure his presence. Look at verse 5 with me. It says in verse 5, from the time that he put him in charge, when he put Joseph in charge of his household, and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. Why? Because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. This word blessing is important in the book of Genesis because here's what it communicates. It's a reminder of the original blessing that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. Let's refresh our memories of that. The Lord's speaking to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And here it is, you will be a blessing. He continues, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You see, God blessed Joseph, and in blessing Joseph, Joseph was a blessing to Potiphar. This is God's mission Understand something, when God blesses us with the treasure of the gospel, it is not for our sakes alone. It is so that then we can be a blessing to others. Brother or sister, listen carefully. The gospel is not a treasure to just hide in your heart. It's a treasure to be shared with a lost and dying world. At the beginning of the chapter, Joseph was in the palace God's favor was clearly on him, and those around him, including Potiphar, had taken note. But things changed quickly as we move to the end of verse 6 and through verse 10. Notice this. In temptations, God's presence is our conscience. In temptations, I would say it this way, God's presence must be what guides us. The plot twist happens in verse 7. Before we get there, we need to make note of something It says at the end of verse 6, there's this detail, now Joseph was well built and handsome. Can we just make note of that? Right? And it was in the genes you could say, right? The same words are used of Rachel. (laughs) Joseph was well built and he was a handsome young man. So I don't know, just hold on to that. Verse 7, after some time his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. And the temptation is before him. Now, just a few quick words about what she says to him. She presents this matter in terms of power rather than as a request. In two words in the Hebrew language, that's it, two words, she says, come to bed with me. Now, this is important because in that culture, again, we've got to realize this is not the 21st century modern day culture in which we live in. In that culture, Joseph was a slave of that household and it was an understood notion in that culture that it was a promiscuous sort of society, that it would not have been a foreign uh, thing to happen for, that, for Joseph to give in to that request. It was normal, you could say, in that culture. But in contrast to her two-word command, Joseph responds in the next verses with a 35-word refusal. Refusal. He didn't just say no. He had fixed in his heart and mind why he should refuse her advances. And we need to learn from him. Here's why. God's presence shines light on sin's darkness. The greatest deterrent, I believe, to sin and the greatest catalyst to our repentance is the reality of knowing that God is with us at all times. Isn't this what we teach our children? God's watching you. It's not just a childish thing we should say. It's true. Joseph knew it was true. Joseph knew that nothing escaped God's all-seeing understanding. Joseph has a clear understanding of sin and its consequences. First, he says this. Sin hurts others, he says. Sin hurts others. In other words, sin is not victimless. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife. That word, look, it means you need to listen to me. This was a stern word. This was him saying, this isn't just a lesson for me. This is a lesson for you, and you need to pay attention. With me here, he says, my, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house. And he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you. Why? Because you are his wife. Joseph framed his refusal, first of all, in the fact that he knew this sin would hurt someone else. Can I tell you something? There is no sin that is victimless. Listen to me. There is no sin that is victimless. Sin hurts. Sin harms. It harms you and I if we sin or when we sin, but guess what? It also harms others. Even your most private sins, listen carefully, and I'm not going to go into detail, but listen. Your most private sins are not victimless. Joseph did not justify his sin as a response to his personal trauma either. Think about modern culture, the justifications people make for sin. Well, I had this difficulty in my life, therefore sin is understandable. We do this, right? You may have done this, I may have done this. But listen, there was no one else more so than Joseph that had a right to say, "Look what I've been through. I've got a right to some pleasure." He had had a rotten life, guys, and so instead he responds with this refusal. Secondly. Sin perverts goodness. Notice what he says in verse 9. He continues after he says this, he, she is your, you are his wife. He says, so how could I do this? Immense evil is the language he uses. This word evil is important. It means wickedness quite literally, but it comes up again, and this is important because it seems to be something that Joseph understood well. Not only had he been victimized by evil, but he begins to describe this action as one that could be evil. And then later, in chapter 50 and verse 20, this verse that is a key verse in this story, Joseph says this, You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. So Joseph describes how he would give into this temptation. If he gave into this temptation, he said, "It's the same evil that befell me not too long ago." Understand that evil, or, or sorry, sin, is a distortion. It is a perversion of God's goodness to us. And finally, sin offends God. It offends God. Joseph culminates by saying, "How could I sin against God?" David says it this way in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me against you. You alone, God. I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. You see how this understanding comes up again and again? Evil, the same word used there again by David. David. A personal realization of the presence of God is the greatest deterrent for sin. But notice this also. God's presence does not protect us from temptation. Just because we are dwelling in his presence does not mean we won't be tempted because what happens in Joseph's life can happen to us as well. God's presence, however, does guide us through persistent temptation, ongoing temptation. Notice what verse 10 tells us about this episode. Although she spoke to Joseph, it says, day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Literally, that word refusal means he did not listen to her. It was as if he put his hands over his ear and said, la, 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 I'm not listening to it, right? I'm not even going to listen to this temptation. He fled from temptation quite literally, we're going to see. Listen, temptation is not a fleeting experience, friends. And perhaps today, more than ever before, there are more ways that temptation is constantly before us. But despite Joseph's resilience, adversity still came. He did the right thing. But let me, get, let me tell you something very true and very biblical. Doing the right thing does not always mean that things work out well for you. You can be right where God wants you to be and in the middle of a terrible situation. So often we look at our situation around us and we say things are going good, I must be doing what is right. And then we look at things going badly or poorly for us and we say, man, where did I mess up? Listen, that is nothing but a heresy we know as karma in other religions. That's not biblical truth. Joseph did the right thing and notice what happens. In adversity, God's presence must be our confidence. Adversity was a reality for Joseph. He might have fled from temptation, but the adversity still came. I just want to read through this for you. Notice what happens in verses 11 through 13. Now, one one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, Sleep with me. But instead, but but leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. Again, he fled from temptation. Verse 13, when she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants and said, look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man. By the way, that phrase Hebrew man is meant to be a racial slur in the biblical text. To make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me. That's a lie. And I screamed as loud as I could. Oh my goodness, there's another lie. And when he heard me screaming for help, there's a lie. He left his garment beside me and he ran outside. I would say the only true part of that is that last statement. Do you see what happened here? He did the right thing, but he still had to walk through adversity. But we can still be confident, and Joseph could too. Listen carefully. Words had harmed Joseph. She continues to weave a tale, an untrue tale, that harmed him. And we don't even get to hear Joseph's rebuttal. Perhaps he didn't offer one. But pay attention. We can be confident even when words hurt us. Words hurt. Words do harm. Scripture speaks to this again and again. Beware of gossip. Beware of a slanderous tongue, the Scriptures say, but I want you to see also what happens in verses 19 and 20. After all of these lies, it says this when his master heard the story, his wife told him, These are the things your slave did to me, he was furious. This word furious is one of burning, intense anger that could not be quenched. That's the picture here. He was more than just a little upset. He didn't just buy this story and have a little doubt in his mind. No, he bought this story hook, line, and sinker. And here's what happens. He had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison, the Scriptures say. Now understand this. His anger was so intense. It would have been understandable, and I would even say expected in that culture, for him not to go to prison, he should have been killed for what happened. But by God's grace and because of God's mercy and his protection and his goodness, he at least was alive in prison. Why? Listen carefully. We can be confident even when others abandon us. It wasn't just words that hurt Joseph. He was abandoned. That emphasis there that he went to prison, this is an isolated place. This is a place where there is no advocate, if you will. Paul would say it this way in the New Testament. Paul, who spent so many hours in prison so many days so many years he said it to this way young said it this way to young Timothy 2nd Timothy chapter 4 verses 16 through 18 I know I've shared this before because I love these verses Paul says I at my first defense no one stood by me but everyone deserted me he says may it not be counted against them but the Lord stood with me you catch that he says nobody else was there But the Lord was with me. Listen, God's presence, God's presence gives us confidence when everyone else, it seems, has abandoned us. So Joseph is thrown into prison. Now look with me at verses 21 through 23. It's kind of a retelling of what happened in the palace, but now he's in the prison, but it's the same sequence of events. But the Lord was with Joseph, it says, and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden, just like he did with Potiphar. The warden put all of the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, just like Potiphar did. And he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And the Lord made everything that he did successful. There's a phrase in verse 21 that we need to cling tightly to. The translation of Scripture I just read says this, that the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. Your Bible may say that the Lord showed love to him or extended loving kindness to him. And I think that's a better understanding of this verse. I think that perhaps this translation didn't convey that clearly. Because here's the truth, friends. We can be confident ultimately because God loves us. God loves us. In all of this, God's motivation for walking with Joseph and being w- present with him in all circumstances, in all of this, it was because of his love that he was there. This, I said this last week and I'll say it again. Christianity is the only world religion that has this concept of God's abiding presence. We don't have to earn his love or his favor Joseph, notice, utters not a word to the Lord here, but the Lord loved him, and he was confident because of it. As we come to a time of response, I want to just lay a few things before you. What do you do with this? What do you take with you? Couple questions. Are you aware that God is with you in all circumstances? A better question is this, does your life reflect the realization that God is with you in all circumstances? It says that Potiphar made note that the Lord was with Joseph. There is a world that is watching how we respond to adversity, And Potiphar made note that the Lord was with Joseph. Something was unique about him. Does your life, as you walk through difficulty, as you walk through temptation, does it present to a watching world your understanding that God is with you in all circumstances? You know, there's a reason why in John chapter 15 and verse five, Jesus said this, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me or abides in me, and I in him produces much fruit. And he says this because you can do nothing without me. We want to focus on that fruitfulness part, but I want you to focus on that last tagline there. Without him, you can do nothing. Believer, does your life reflect that today? But non believer, If you've never before done this, I invite you to cling to his presence. Cling to his presence. And it's with his presence, with him walking with you, you can walk through adversity and difficulty. You can walk through temptations with him. You can walk with him and grow in your understanding of his love for you, his grace for you, I heard it said this way over lunch. Somebody, we were, it was a discipleship kind of lunch, and we were talking to a new believer, and, and the person said, listen, I, I don't know how people walk through life without God. Uh, can I pose that question to you today? I don't know how you walk through life without Him. And I encourage you, here, here's what's going to happen in just a moment. I'm going to invite those folks that pray with us on Wednesday night. Y'all can come up and sit here on the front row. It's a little full down here. Maybe you can spread out to each side. I'm going to invite you in just a moment to respond to this invitation. And it's real simple. Uh, I'm not asking you to come down and share a testimony or a word. You don't got to come stand behind the pulpit and tell your life story. Nothing like that. But I invite you. To, to come and, and to take one of these kind folks by the hand and, and let them pray with you. Just share your heart with them. You don't have to have answers today. You may only have questions, and that's okay. But I invite you to come and ask those questions. Uh, because just last week, we had somebody come, and they had some questions, and then they got some answers. And so as Miss as, uh, Vivian plays and James sings, we're going to sing together. And if you are a believer, I want you to praise the Lord to the top of your lungs. Thank him for his presence. But if you're not, I encourage you to respond to his kindness and his grace to you today. I invite you to stand as we pray.